0: You are listening to the Public Sphere, a podcast created by early career researchers at the Trinity Long Room Hub. Our ethos is to interject the discussions we have in academia into the public sphere, asking what arts and humanities research can contribute to broader public knowledge. For season two, we discuss one general theme: connection. Welcome to season two of the Public Sphere. My name is Orla Darling, and I'm a PhD candidate in the School of English, Trinity College Dublin. And a Government of Ireland postgraduate scholar with the Irish Research Council. My research looks at representations of neoliberalism in contemporary Irish women's short fiction, and I am more generally very interested in the reciprocal and symbiotic connections between literature and societal structures. As the books and arts reviewer for the Irish Times, Sarah Gilmartin, has observed, One thing that links the fictional worlds she has reviewed of late is a yearning for meaning and connection. This is certainly true of the work of Lucy Sweeney Byrne, who I am delighted to interview for this episode of The Hublick Sphere. Lucy is a writer from Greystones, whose short fiction and essays have been published in The Stinging Fly, Banshee, The Dublin Review, Grist and 3am magazine. Her debut short story collection, Paris Syndrome, was published by Banshee Press in 2019 and was shortlisted for the Dalky Emerging Writer Award, the Edgehill Short Story Prize, the Butler Literary Award, the Kate O'Brien Award and the John McGahern Annual Book Prize. A second edition of Paris Syndrome was released by Banshee Press in July of this year. Echoing the themes of internet culture we discussed, Lucy and I met via Zoom in June 2020, Lucy in rural Northumberland, and myself in Dublin. From the off, and not without irony, Wi-Fi issues troubled our connection, but we nonetheless managed to have a scintillating conversation about the short form in autofiction, connections to the literary canon, connective tissues in the contemporary Irish literary scene, connections between Lucy's writing and that of her mother, Cathy Sweeney, and much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So thanks so much for joining me, Lucy. I'm thrilled that you're here. I wonder if we could maybe start by you telling us a bit about Paris Syndrome, your collection, and how it came into being. I'm
1: always in a funny
0: position talking
1: about Paris Syndrome because I am one of those writers that once something is written, a bit like a terrible mother, I just forget about (laughs) it. It's obviously a story collection. There is a single heroine well different versions of a sort of single heroine running through each of the stories each one is set in a different place it's I mean my original title for it actually was travelogue but um, quite rightly the editors at Banshee thought that would be very confusing for bookshops (laughs) essentially as I either visited these places or if it's it's entirely fictional sort of uh, research and imagine visiting these places the stories came about naturally and so some of them were included in magazines over the years, so it was sort of slow coming together, and then it was really just when I was hoping to get a book together, I was thinking, "Gosh, that would be lovely." And then I realised that the work I had made up about two thirds of what could be actually quite a cohesive collection. And then it was really after Banshee had agreed to publish it that I wrote about three more fourish with the collection in mind, but they happened accidentally. To be honest, they weren't even planned for it.
0: That's so interesting because Paris Syndrome is such a strong title, but obviously log would have made thematically a lot of sense as well because it is about yeah. traveling. But I wonder if you could explain that idea of Paris Syndrome and how that melds with your book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, funny enough, I'm listening at the moment to the recent biography of D.H. Lawrence, but um, there's a quote from a letter that he writes about traveling. I think he's just arrived somewhere it might be New Zealand or around that area and he wrote to his friend Mary Kennan, travel seems to me a splendid lesson in disillusion which I thought would have been a perfect opening quote for my book if I'd known it at the time. (laughs) But I mean Paris Syndrome actually is a, a real syndrome most notably suffered by Japanese tourists who have built up in their mind this highly romanticized, idealized notion of the city of Paris. And it's often on their honeymoons um, would actually go to Paris, finally visit this city and realize that it's just a normal place where they still have to you know, use a loo or buy milk and there's homelessness and there's grime and they would suffer an actual mental breakdown because of the enormous disparity between their idealized vision, what it was gonna be, and then the reality. So yeah, Parasyndrome just came about because I think it sounds great, it's quite punchy, but then also one of the running themes through the collection is very much that sense of disillusion and of being constantly seeking some sort of answer as though it's a geographical problem, but really it's a spiritual problem.
0: There's that real strong sense of wherever I go, here I am. Yes. Yeah. And I suppose, particularly because although it's a short story collection, you use features that are not traditionally associated with short story collection in that there is a more or less consistent narrator, Lucy, who obviously has the same name as you. I wonder if you could talk a bit about what drew you to using this single narrator or is she a single narrator?
1: I wish I had some incredibly highly intellectual, highfalutin answer for that, but really I I was writing within my capabilities and I was very much writing these stories as a way of living. It was a way of digesting reality and the reality of being a young woman in her twenties at the time that made life bearable. Mm -hmm. So to use my own reality in a way that it could be constructed in a way that I liked, not necessarily making these Lucy characters likable at all. They're generally not, I think. And that was important to me that it was never a case of this poor victim, because I think Mm -hmm. that's hugely problematic in a lot of modern female writing that these women seem to just have things done to them and have no control over it. Like Lucy in the book is a highly manipulative person. So for me, the writing itself was just a way of creating purpose in my life at the time and also yeah, a way of digesting reality. So the reason that they are all these kind of similar young women in this situation is because I was trying to put words on the reality that I was in some way or another experiencing.
0: I'd love to come back to this idea that you didn't want to portray her as a passive victim. And I'd love to come back to that a bit later. But when you're talking about writing as a way of digesting reality and as a sort of therapeutic process, you have written elsewhere about autofiction in a brilliant essay for 3AM magazine where you write about autofiction and the hills, the TV show. <laughs> Autofiction is a term that comes up a lot in relation to your work, but I know that you have some issues with it.
1: <laughs> having a having a book out is a very strange experience because for someone like myself, who's ultimately quite private, to suddenly open yourself up to sort of criticism and to a readership, it's it's odd. Like, not that I didn't write before, but it's a strange thing. And you also then have to look at yourself with that third eye because lots of third eyes are suddenly looking at your work and think what like what am i doing why is this happening so i went through a real sort of crisis of of faith in the whole process of writing that i'm going through daily just questioning the purpose and questioning my own motives i think there's an aspect of autofiction that is quite cowardly you know i think there's a great way of sculpting and controlling the events of your life, which is very much what I was trying to do with Paris syndrome um, as Mm -hmm. a coping mechanism. And as much as that can be a really wonderful and beautiful and interesting thing, I think if not done with a consciousness of how manipulative that is as a method, then it can be highly problematic. There's this great history of quite selfish, broken people who take to writing as a way to cope with their world and to control it and own it and form it into beautiful words. But there's something questionable in that whole endeavor. And I suppose I was really grappling with that at the time of that essay. I think autofiction addresses that very directly because not only are you necessarily writing about yourself and your own interactions, but you're, of course, always bringing in the people with whom you have interacted. And that can be very dangerous. You know, I think a lot of writers have to make a choice between being kind to those they love and not including them in their fiction or not including them in their, you know, memoir writing or whatever, or just fucking going for it. And that's a mm. enormous ethical question that I think after Paris Syndrome coming out, only then did I really realize the repercussions.
0: And that makes total sense, especially if you are looking at writing as firstly something that has developed, as you said, over over a decade, this collection mm. that it's not going to be something that's always in your mind over the course of that decade. And then it's once you see it as a cohesive whole, that maybe yeah. these things come to the fore. And it's it's really interesting because I think what you captured in both Paris Syndrome, but also in the essay you've written on autofiction is this sense of hedging your bets that you're almost weaponizing a real acute self-consciousness to yes, let yourself yeah. away with things that are ethically dubious something that comes up a lot in conversations about internet culture and social media is this this sense of being a keyboard warrior and being able to very specifically curate the self and the opinions that yeah. you're putting out there to be woke regardless of what yeah. you're actually doing in your day-to-day
1: yeah funny I <laughs> I don't have any social media personally now I, I did of course when I was younger but I haven't had it in about three or so years I'd say now and I really Uh, despair, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) quietly despair at the whole culture of it. I'm not at all a fan of that whole virtue signaling, righteous indignation sort of approach to, to progress and to the social world. I think it's hugely problematic. And if anything, creating, as we see over and over, just a culture of new types of hatred. And I guess as someone involved in autofiction, I've had to I've had to consider those links too. You know, that there is an element of trying to sculpt how people perceive you. But I'd like to think that at least in my writing, I'm never trying to make anybody like me.
0: It's very interesting to hear that you don't have social media and that you don't, you know, very consciously don't engage with that world because you write about it so well. And part of Lucy's yeah. problem is that she's almost too enthralled to the internet at times there's a real performativity that comes across there I wonder was that was the internet while you don't like engaging with it necessarily a very useful tool for you to write that type of fractured being
1: yeah I mean if anything I think no matter what my relationship had been with it before I wouldn't have coped well on it now because I find myself so disheartened by how people conduct themselves on it. I find it very difficult, this sort of um, binary, I suppose, binary thinking, making everything into dualities. I really loved having social media in a lot of ways. You know, it's obviously highly addictive. I mean, it's sculpted to be that way. And it gave you those little endorphin boosts. Because I was also like mad for things like Tinder. And it was I'm one of the only people from anyone I've spoken to about it or what I've read about it who loved those Tinder chats that went nowhere. I just loved chatting away. These people I had no intention to meet up with. I was just like, great, 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 chat, chat, chat. Okay, goodbye. It was just pure validation.
0: Social media, it's it's portrayed as this means to an end. You know, if it's Tinder, it's with the end of finding the love of your life. But obviously that's not actually the reality of it. So it's almost an expectation management exercise. And I suppose that as well seems to be an undercurrent in Paris syndrome that Lucy isn't really able to manage her expectations of a place.
1: Yeah, I feel like in a lot of these situations we're set up to fail. I mean, in terms of, say, something like Tinder or or social media as a whole, or even like, you know, any sort of activity online that's ultimately designed to be taking up your time. I mean, I'm a firm believer in the idea that phones and the Internet on your phones and a lot of what people do are specifically designed to make us forget how bored we are, to avert mm. boredom. I, I have absolutely no doubt that that is a major part of the planning with all of these things, including those games people play. And uh, now there's all this, like, I'm going to say online betting, but it isn't. It's like people getting involved in the stock market. And it's just a way to forget how sort of existentially bored we are mm. a lot of the time. It's funny, because when novels first came into being and became popular, they were considered an incredible waste of time and only sort of worthy of silly women. And then when newspapers really became popular, they were a huge waste of time. So it just seems that they're finding more and more ways for us to waste our time better. In terms of managing expectations with actual travel and actual life, one thing I would say I've always been is hyper romantic. When I was small, when I was a little girl, I wouldn't even wear trousers. I was, you know, I was really into dresses, really into princesses. And I think I always thought that I would find either in a place, but really all I was ever doing was looking for a person who would solve everything for me, would solve this sense of purposelessness and and of being sort of extremely self-conscious and never feeling comfortable in a room. It was all this sense that if I just found the right person in the right place, in the right scenario, they would solve me. And it was, Mm. you know, a big part of growing up obviously, and even of maybe having Paris syndrome out to realise that that was never a realistic expectation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a narrative that you're fed as a woman and, you know, you're watching Disney films or fairy tales or whatever it is, you know, that this idea that there is a one human being who is a panacea to to all the issues in your life. I mean, it took me well, I
1: would say 10 years, but really, let's say I started looking for this man when I was five years old, So <laughs> let's say closer to, you know, like 25 years to realize that if I was going to be in any way contented, that it wasn't going to be because I had a man on my arm. Even the men that I seemed to like and that I genuinely did like or even thought I loved, I had this underlying rage towards them for that sense of dependency and the submission that would be required of me to even achieve this sort of perfect union. The sort of irrationality of my want and my need from them made me hate them too.
0: Yeah, that sort of ambivalence that you describe, like it comes across so much throughout the collection. And coming back to what you said earlier about not wanting Lucy to seem passive or as a victim that things just happen to, you know, she does utilize her sexuality quite a lot to get things that she wants or even to just fill an evening or whatever it is yeah and I'm wondering you write about that in a very not confrontational way but you certainly Mm. don't shy away from that part of femininity that I think again women are often conditioned to be and I wonder, you know, did you have a particular way you wanted to write about female sexuality?
1: I really did. I mean, like, I don't think it was a conscious thing that I sat down, you know, with the stories in the collection and thought, OK, this is it. But something I felt I didn't read enough of was the confrontational aspect of female sexuality. And I keep using the word, but I think the highly manipulative aspect that can come into it, where even with men that you know you're not going to... Uh, you know, give anything up to even the phrasing is so highly fraught with misogyny. And even having to use that phrasing creates the sense of rage and helplessness, but also this sense of vengeance, I suppose. And I think often in female writing, you get the parody of the man, these like, you know, foolish or cruel or whatever, idiot men, but you don't get any ownership on the female side of recognizing that at the time and using it to your own advantage. And I think in Paris syndrome, you can see over and over where that sort of coy feminine wiles, these phrases are just shocking, but they have been in common use for so long, thank God we're getting over them, are replaced by sort of out-and-out rage. It's so much easier and more comfortable to present us as nice and lovely and victims and them as just assholes.
0: I mean, you definitely don't fall into that trap in the collection and I love that idea of this barely contained rage in the face of all of these inarticulable social norms or expectations or the feeling that something's not quite right but you're not quite sure what that is. One of the questions that I've been dying to ask you probably because my own work sort of focuses on uh, neoliberalism, which is also hard to define and hard to pin (laughs) down. But there's just this sense that she's sort of tuning into these highly complex economic systems, globalised market systems, things like PwC and Topshop (laughs) and Airbnb are dropped into stories alongside very lofty ideas like existentialism. And I suppose I sort of want to ask you in a very broad sense of the word, would you consider your work political? Yeah,
1: interesting. I think um, I don't enjoy writing that that goes into it with a political agenda. I mm-hmm. really dislike that immensely. I, there was a um, TV show not that long ago called Devs or Deus that the guy essentially had a, had a sort of uh, philosophical, excuse me, concept and then wrote a narrative around it to me that's just a a recipe for failure i don't like when novels are sort of billed as like an answer to the race problem or an answer to the Mm -hmm. gender problem having said that i think any writing worth its salt or just any writing ultimately will betray a set of political ideals or ideas and a stance in the world that's inescapable but I certainly do not go in thinking I'm going to write a feminist story or anything mm. like that.
0: I agree that it's very dangerous territory when you're writing fiction to a particular agenda. But I suppose yeah. it comes back to that dynamic that you're talking about with fiction, where even if you're writing what you might want to call pure fiction, can you ever separate yourself as a writer from that? And can you ever separate your views from what you end up putting onto a page? Is that a fool's errand?
1: I just thought, you know what, I don't even think you should try. I mean, not that you should write every character to be like you, how incredibly dull. But, you know, I, th- I think it's almost naive to think that a writer could, because ultimately, be it Judeo-Christian or be it ancient Japanese culture or whatever, you are always going to get the moral and ethical system of the writer, whether they're defying it through their characters or whether they're conforming and just discussing it or whether they don't even realize they're putting it in. There is no way that the writer's point of view won't come across ultimately in the writing. Even writing that goes dramatically against what you presume to be the moral and ethical stance of the writer, like Lolita or like American Psycho or Crime and Punishment. For me, what they're doing is using a strange or awful or terrible example to re-establish what they believe to be right you know so mm-hmm. ultimately it just comes about as a natural process in the writing.
0: I suppose another question that almost follows on from that is that just as you're putting parts of your own received views into your work that you are working in this sort of long shadow of a whole literary canon and I know that you mm. read a lot. Also, thinking of power syndrome, you know, things are very specifically name checked, like it's a short story collection by an Irish author that refers to James Joyce and quotes Dubliners. Is that idea of canon important to you as a reader and a writer? I mean, I think what's useful about
1: this idea of the canon is that generally, not always, if you need to sort of get a guide of what should I read next... You can allude to this sort of nebulous thing that is the canon and probably find a good book. In any other regard, I think much like how we sort of make sense of and categorize history or the events of the world or today's news, the canon is a fiction in itself. I really don't believe in the term. I also think that systematizing writing based on nationality or based on gender can be incredibly limiting And I think the more you read, the more you realise that these links that we've created, say, between two very different modernist writers or two very different contemporary writers are questionable.
0: For sure. The boundaries of those terms are they're so porous but well, I'm aware that particularly in contemporary Irish literature writers that are working now who deal with the internet deal with sort of young narrators particularly women narrators you know there's a tendency to call them millennial writers and I'm thinking mm, I suppose, yeah. best known example would be Sally Rooney someone like Nisha Dolan yeah. how do you feel about that term does that resonate with you
1: I think it's difficult because, you know, if millennial actually refers to an age group in that way, it's just pure fact that these are people of a certain age writing about their own world and their own milieu, maybe, and the sense of how they experience the world, which will include inevitably their own politics so say maybe their own take on modern concepts of feminism as a woman in the world or their own interactions with the internet or their new views on romance i think grouping them together in any way beyond the fact that they just happen to be of a similar age and therefore of the same concerns is very limiting i also think it's been very difficult for a lot of young women Coming out with novels in ireland which there seems to be a plethora at the moment that it's probably the last thing they want to do is be called the next sally rooney because (laughs) it's unfair on sally who has done her own thing and it's unfair on them who've put all this work into writing a novel and they don't want to just be part b
0: yeah the gender dynamics there are interesting too like is there this need to make women writers relational to each other and contingent on each other that we might not apply to other types of writers there does
1: seem to be a large crossover in young slightly disillusioned or lost women going to trinity meeting a mean mm. man and i'm sure that they are like they vary enormously in their style and and their conclusions and their ideas but it mm. is an interesting phenomenon that we'll be able to look back on and maybe it is because there's been such a distinct lack of the irish female subjective voice that suddenly with so much that's happening politically in ireland it makes sense that there would be a rush of these people wanting to tell their story and that maybe people who have gone to Trinity and studied English are the ones who just happen to be likely to have the opportunity to tell it.
0: Absolutely. That that has been a link that's been made. I think this connection between breaking silences in a, in a sort of political and social arena and then in a literary and narrative arena that that would not follow, but that there is some sort of correlation. A lot of the groups that we're talking about that you can categorise, you know, they've written novels and in many ways, the novel is a much more popular or, or conventional form than the short story. But the short story is obviously a very cherished form in Ireland. I'm suppose I'm wondering what drew you to that form.
1: The short story is a cherished form amongst people who really love literature. I don't think I don't think in the sort of broader reading or non-reading world, people give much of a toss about the short story. That certainly, as I've since learned in terms of sales and everything, the short story will never do or it, it has to be an exceptional collection to do as well as a novel or it has to be by a, a known writer. For me, the short story was just something I could do. I enjoy brevity, in spite of how much I'm rambling now, especially, you know, the amount of novels I have attempted to read and put down because I've just thought this should have been a long short story. I also think that with an awful lot of nonfiction coming out at the moment, I hate the term nonfiction because it's sort of uh, it doesn't feel like a strong enough term for what's such mm-hmm. an interesting genre a lot of those books definitely should just be long essays. But, you know, as a writer, you're encouraged to be able to create a full book so that it's saleable, so that you won't starve to death.
0: I think you raise so many interesting points. And it's definitely a fact that, yes, novels sell in in much greater numbers and are so much more profitable to everyone involved. But I suppose talking about that idea of something being saleable and writers being encouraged to stretch things out so that, as you say, they don't you know, starved to death. You're someone who's been published in a raft of different literary journals and publications and magazines. And we were talking about this feeling that there is a plethora of, of new Irish writing coming out. I'm wondering if you could talk about your experience with literary journals and the role that you think they might play in that.
1: In terms of literary journals, I don't know where most writers would be without them. For writers, it's a great way to, first of all, get published. But actually, the main thing is just having those interactions with editors when you're starting out especially just kind of seeing what happens and in a way it's very free but when an editor first looks at your work and begins sculpting it and actually making a proper shape of it and validating the idea that okay maybe you're not just useless at this I think that's incredibly important I think there's wonderful wonderful editors at work In Ireland at the moment, I think there's a real energy in terms of the literary journal scene. But even when you walk into independent bookshops in Dublin, like books upstairs, the first thing you see is that table of the literary Mm. journals. It's just an absolutely fabulous resource for writers. Also, I think this sense uh, that literary journals give everybody of being somehow involved in the writing process, that it is a little bit more democratic and, you know, there's there's an accessibility that they provide for writer and reader that's very refreshing.
0: When I first met you at, well, the only time I met you in person at the Dublin Book Festival a couple of years ago, you mentioned that your mum had a collection coming out. Yes. Um, which I have since read, um, which is Cathy ah. Sweeney's Modern Times, published by Stinging Fly, and it's a gem of a collection. It's brilliant. And I suppose I'm just really curious about what it's like having two writers in the same family.
1: I mean, it's great, I have to say. I can't imagine it would be great for everyone. But my mum and I, it's funny. I think, if anything, having that as our sort of shared common interest has been a godsend. And who knows? Maybe that's why, like, one of the reasons, unconsciously, that I started writing to have this commonality with my mother and a great way mm-hmm. to be able to talk to her and, you know, really interest each other. It's been a huge bonding thing. We're also very lucky in that there really has never been any competitiveness. I'm a highly competitive person. I don't think she is, but I am. And that just never really applied to her, I think, just because it's always been a source of support for both of us.
0: That's wonderful to hear, actually. And it's great yeah. to hear that there is no sort of <laughs> sense of competition because your work does seem very, very different And I'm wondering, like, do you see any connections at all? I think we would
1: both have a very strong stance in terms of what writing means in our lives. And it would for both of us, I think it's not just important, but a necessity. I think that actually probably is the one thing that comes across in both collections, that there is a real teetering at times on the brink of reality, of you know social normality even of sanity (laughs) and I think having writing and very especially actually for both of us having reading as a crux when dealing with day-to-day life I think that comes across in both collections and that would be the one link maybe because obviously stylistically and in terms of content they're quite different other than maybe being clearly written by a female.
0: That's very interesting. And coming back to that thing that you said earlier about this sense of seeking and, you know, not necessarily finding the answer in any straightforward way. And that comes back to Maybe something about the short form itself, because I'm going to quote Anne Enright, who who normally says good things about, about, um, you know, literature. And she says that the short form is a perfect vehicle for, quote, the fragmentation of old certainties and the absence of any new ones. And she references the unknowability of the short form. And that's something that strikes me about both your work, but also your mum, Kathy Sweeney's work. And I'm wondering, does that resonate with you?
1: Funny, you know, you uh, very kindly, and I'm glad you did, sent me that quote before we talked, which is uh, very nice of you, because I read it a couple of times, and I was thinking, God, that's so classic Anne Enright, that sounds fantastic. (laughs) I kind of read it and read it, and I was like, I don't really know what I think of that. For me, the short story, in terms of what it can do content-wise, like in terms Mm -hmm. of um, sort of preconceptions and realities and all that, is just, again, a more succinct way of doing what any piece of writing ought to do, which is to make you look again. I think that a great novel or a great poem can do the exact same thing as a short story in terms of its um, ability to affect the reader and affect maybe your view on reality. So I'm so impressed by that quote, but I don't necessarily hold with it.
0: <laughs> that's really interesting. And I can see divergence there in your take on the short form and also convergence with Enright. So this idea of, of making you look again through defamiliarizing the reader in yeah. some way and whether that's through your mum's style which is quite idiosyncratic and off the wall and you yeah. certainly have to read those stories a couple of times for years where there is this real sense of searching that's just so much a part of Paris syndrome that again you know encourages multiple readings.
1: What I really admire about my mum's writing is a high level of craftsmanship. You know, she'll spend hours on a sentence or days on a sentence. I think in terms of the content and what she's trying to get across, it's very instinctive. And I think what's so beautiful about her stories in particular is that You can take from them what you will. And I think all great writing has that effect where, you know, we can interpret it to death, but ultimately all that matters is the one reader sitting down one day, be it in a thousand years or be it at the day it's written, and getting what they get from a story or from any piece of writing. But a story is so effective because it is like a bullish.
0: I think, yeah, that's a beautiful way to sum up what stories can do. I don't want to say anything else because I sort of want to leave it there. Thank you so much for for talking to me today. The Public Sphere is a podcast produced by early career researchers at the Trinity Long Room Hub. For more information on this podcast episode, follow our Twitter account at Public Sphere, where you will be directed to our show notes and website. The second season of the Public Sphere is produced by Conor Brennan, Orla Darling, Lisa Doyle, Courtney Helen Groyle, Tom Hegley, Lorraine McAvoy, and Alan O'Neill. With many thanks for our jingle to Angus O'Loughlin.